This episode is brought to you by MGMA Events. Join us June 6th through the 8th for a robust and convenient learning experience featuring education from industry leaders covering a wide variety of challenges facing medical practices today. MGMA Summit is a signature online event that allows you to take control of your journey by attending live or by accessing the sessions at your own pace until July 8th. Go to mgma.com events to learn more and to register today. Healthcare is complicated, but you don't have to navigate the complexities alone. Care Allies collaborates with physician organizations to solve some of the toughest challenges on the path to value-based care. As your organization works to effectively manage your more vulnerable patient populations, enhance outcomes, and improve data analytics, Care Allies brings the people, technology, and processes to support you so you can focus on practicing medicine. Visit careallies.com to see how they can help to radically simplify value-based care. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Daniel Williams, Senior Editor of MGMA and host of the MGMA Podcast Network. Today, we welcome Jonathan Lear to the show. Jonathan has his MHA, MSA, CHFP. He is also Division Administrator, Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology at Johns Hopkins Medicine. And Jonathan is here to talk about a very important topic, what docs don't get taught tools for talking finance with your clinicians. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Daniel. Absolutely. So before we take a deep dive into that topic of communicating with uh, providers and physicians and clinicians, first tell us about what your focus is at Johns Hopkins. I, I see that you're in that geriatric medicine and gerontology side, but Specifically, what are you focused on right now? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I guess a little bit of everything, uh, as is normally the case for a hospital or healthcare administrator. Um, but, but more specifically, so here at Hopkins, um, you know, we've got kind of a, a dyad model um, in a lot of our academic divisions within the, the School of Medicine and more specifically within the Department of Medicine. I work um, with my division chief. Um, Cynthia, Dr. Cynthia Boyd, um, and she's the kind of the physician leader of the, of the group, and I act as the administrative leader of the group. And so, you know, a lot of the, the day-to-day functions of, of running the, the division in terms of having coverage, seeing patients, making sure that we provide that high quality, high, high yield, you know, quaternary care um, with all of the individuals coming to see us at Hopkins and, and really coming for our, you know, specialty expertise. Um, is what we strive to do every single day. But, you know, of course, there's always the, the things that, you know, drive everyone a little batty, right? Uh, you know, little tiny things, you know, all the way from, uh, you know, contract negotiations to HR issues to, uh, you know, which pins we should buy. So um, I guess a little bit of everything, but, uh, uh, you know, I try to be a jack of all trades at, at any certain moment. Right. Now, in your background, had you always been on that track of gerontology, that side of 
healthcare? Is that the track you chose uh, for yourself? And if so, what was it about that that interested you? Well, actually, no, Daniel, to be honest with you. So I, I kind of um, started out this journey um, wanting to be an accountant of all things. And oh so my gosh. <laughs> uh, anyone, anyone that meets me is always like, I don't see you as an accountant, but uh, <laughs> I guess math just kind of made sense to me uh, and numbers made sense to me, uh, which I guess I've passed on to my seven-year-old since she makes me do math problems with her at night before she goes to bed. So uh, at least I passed on at least one good trait, right? Good. Um, but, um, you know, it, it was actually kind of a pivotal moment in my life. My, uh, my mother, uh, got, uh, pretty seriously ill and, um, my dad, who's been a hospital administrator in Arkansas, which is where I grew up, um, for many, many years. Um, you know, I, I guess I never really knew what he did for a living and, and didn't want to follow in his footsteps or I didn't listen to him at the dinner table when I was 13 years old, I guess, like every other 13 year old. Um, and so, uh, I went to TCU or Texas Christian University. Go Frogs. Got to have that plug in there. Um, <laughs> there's a member of the MGMA staff that I also know went to, to TCU. So got to throw that in there. Um, you know, and and so uh, majored in accounting and finance, was going to be an accountant, got my master's in accounting. And, you know, I was kind of set down the tracks for that. Um, and then, you know, she got really sick and really ill. And so um, as I started to be part of her care team and, and, and kind of get folded into the care continuum, um, I really kind of figured out what my dad did for a living every single day and, and found, wow, you know, you kind of can take the, the, the business side of, of the coin, but really, you know, focus it with a lens and, and helping others and, and being part of that solution team. Um, and so, you know, it really just kind of heightened all of those emotions. And, you know, unfortunately, she she lost her battle to cancer about 11 years ago, but uh, really was kind of my, you know, divining point, I guess, so to speak, and um, went on and got my master's in the hospital administration and uh, have worked for a couple of different institutions, but uh, have really found my niche in, in academic medicine, which is pretty uh, uh, different than others, but uh, have, have really enjoyed that. So um, long answer to your very short question. No, I haven't always focused in gerontology, but uh, very much enjoy working here at Hopkins and 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 with my geriatricians and and really uh, focused on you know providing good quality care as we you know get towards the end of our life cycle. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a very powerful story and a, and a very, I, I mean seriously, a very touching tribute to your mom and your dad that it, both of them helped shape where you are today. So that is a really powerful story. So thanks for sharing that with us. Now. Um, they might not have taught you in accounting what some of the things you're doing right now, obviously. So let's flip that uh, on its head a little bit um, for uh, those providers, those clinicians. Um, what are they not getting taught in uh, med school? And you're looking, I guess, through that lens of that financial side. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it I think it starts with the financial, Daniel, but I think it 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 really, you know, kind of spreads into a lot of different areas, you know, kind of like the roots of a tree. We we got to start in a certain way and then it kind of goes in different directions as we kind of get get towards other places. Um and you know, so kind of my thesis of all of this and mm-hmm. and and was kind of the reason that I became so passionate about it was is that you know, when I was kind of a, uh, I guess what you would refer to as a baby accountant or a, a baby administrator, 
Um, you know, I get a lot of questions. I get a lot of questions from, from doctors and providers um, about, you know, well, what really is this? And, you know, I, I know it says this in my contract, but I have no idea what that is. And, you know, I always just think, well, you know, don't they get taught that stuff? That's, you know, you know, I, I know what that is, you know, why don't they get taught? <laughs> and when I came to find out, you know, because I was, uh, you know, a little short in the tooth instead of long in the tooth, I guess, was that no, they don't, right? And so as I kind of transitioned into academic medicine, I really had a front row seat into what is taught every single day in med schools. And again, it's the things that you would think about, right? Didactic medical education, A&P, bio, organic chem, et cetera, et cetera. But there is not one course, at least in standard, across the board, United States, ACGME, kind of required curricula that says, oh, you need to learn about, well, how you're going to get paid every single day. And so the 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 analogy that I use and I use in my in my talk uh, that I'm uh, about to give here at the um, conference coming up is imagine being a football player and knowing that you need to tackle this person, that you need to stop them from getting to the end zone. Um, but you don't know the rules. And so, you know, right. you hold out your arm and you and you absolutely grab their jersey and you throw them to the ground. Well, obviously that's holding, right? right. Or you, you know, uh, uh, grab the, the front of their face mask and you rip their, you know, almost rip their right. head off, right? That's a flag. That's a penalty. Right. And it's like, well, you look around and you go, well, I know what the basic tenets of this are. I know right. I need to stop that person from getting that ball to that place. but no one's ever shown you the rule book. And so, so you're talking about like Bobby Boucher from the water boy. Yeah, who just exactly, makes up his right? own rules, yeah. flying drop kicks, exactly, um, right? whatever it takes to get the other guy down. And sorry, I just, I kept picturing the water no. boy there when you were giving me that. It's, no, it's a great analogy. In fact, Daniel, I, I need to put that on my slide deck. The next time I get <laughs> this is a big thing of Bobby Boucher, but, but you're right. You're absolutely right. That is, that is what is, what is happening, right? And so what happens is, is that as normal human beings, and this is a neurological research evidence-based thing, nobody likes being wrong. Shocking, I know, <laughs> but nobody likes not knowing something and being wrong. I don't think anyone is going to raise their hand and be like, I want to be called out for being wrong every single day. You know, that's a neurological fact. And so what happens is that you've got people who are highly educated, highly skilled, in the practice of medicine, right? I'm not saying doctors and providers are, you know, uh, lesser than, they don't know what they're talking about. In fact, the exact opposite. We, the, the larger administrative community, have done them a disservice by not doing that. And I think it starts at med school, but it, it, it translates into their, you know, post-med school training and residency. And if they continue on and go into fellowship, that's where we really need to impact them and we really need to hit them and say, hey, let me teach you these things. Because what the one thing that I, I think is, is helpful to understand about all of this is that if you've ever traveled abroad and you've ever gone you know, outside the United States and you go to a country that doesn't speak English as its primary language, mm -hmm. you know that, hey, it's a little bit more difficult to do things, right? You got to kind of <laughs> 
feel your way around, even though each of us have a supercomputer in our pocket and can right. you know pull up Google Translate, right? Right. It still takes some time. And that's kind of the same thing. If we if we are able to teach this special business language, which is really, you know, uh, uh, kind of an interesting topic in and of itself, right. maybe we can communicate better. And maybe this kind of tension and hostility that unfortunately still exists between administrators and providers can maybe, just maybe, be a little bit less as we move forward and work together. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's really interesting that to extend this relationship here to finances, that there's a financial literacy issue that extends to the patients as well. They're often in the dark. They're often going, what is this bill I just got? Or how, why am I paying a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there? And it seems like, uh, based on what you're saying, there needs to be better communication and better transparency uh, all across the line. Um, from administrator to provider to patient, back to administrator. Well, absolutely. I mean, because I guess, you know, if you just think about it, right? The, the, the first person that a patient's going to talk to is your doctor, right? In mm-hmm. the clinic room. That I mean, you're, you're in a, you, you know, usually a 10 by 10 or 12 by 12 room. And that's their opportunity to talk to the doctor, obviously about, you know, why they're there and, you know, mm-hmm. if they're not feeling good, what have you. But, you know, certain things come out of those conversations. And what ends up happening is, you know, they'll come back to me or come back to my colleagues and cohorts and they'll say, hey, I got this question today in clinic or I got this and this and this. And, you know, it becomes this game of telephone almost. And you want to make sure that 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 conversation can happen, you know, within a lens of understanding rather than a lens of, well, my administrator told me this is why I don't really understand that. Mm-hmm. And and you want to kind of avoid that, right? Right. Okay. Let's look at it through the lens of the practice administrator then. Maybe some practices you utilize to talk to providers. Um, our listeners are primarily uh, practice leaders, practice administrators. So what are some of those ways they can uh, uh, communicate effectively to those providers about these complex financial uh, issues? It's a great question, Daniel. And, you know, I, I think, you know, w- what's worked for me in my years of doing this and, and, and has worked for others that I've talked to is you hit them early and you hit them often. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and one of those is that, you know, you're, you're a practice manager, right? I know that the entire audience of this podcast and, and all of my MGMA people that I talk to um, either in, you know, sessions like is, is coming up or, you know, things that I'll do in a live format. I know everything that I say out loud, they all know, right? I'm, I'm talking to my, my compatriots here, right? Um, but I think at least putting a little bit of a, a bug in their ear, so to speak, um, you know, sorry, I grew up in Texas uh, after <laughs> Arkansas. I use a lot of Southern metaphors, apologies in advance. Um, but, you know, to, to really, um, you know, get them to understand, hey, I don't know if you understand, like I didn't understand, you know, I got my, you know, big fancy MHA degree, I thought I could take on the world. And even I didn't understand that they don't, under, that they don't learn this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's not kind of a known quantity until you're out there doing it. And then when you realize it, you go, what, really? And so, 
you know, I know that my practice manager compatriots, they're aware of all of this stuff, right? They know what a work RVU is. They know what a payer mix is, et cetera, et cetera. But I think being able to hit them early, hit them often is, is, is pivotal to success. And so what I've done, what, what I've tried to, you know, kind of get out there into the, the ether and into the universe is let's talk to them during their training, right? Let's talk to them during their, 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 their first couple of months there, right? Now, I would love if I could develop, you know, some coursework and hit them when they're residents, right? When their, their frontal, you know, lobe is still squishy and they can retain <laughs> that information, right? But, but let's say it's not, right? And let's say that you hire a brand new grad out of, well, Hopkins, of course, because obviously I have to say that out loud, um, or any other place, of course, you know, many wonderful programs all across the country. And, and, and you're so excited and they're so excited. And then they come to you and, and you get an opportunity to meet them. I think the one disadvantage that, that a lot of smaller practices, more boutique practices don't do is having that time with the administrator. And it's because that, you know, in smaller settings, it's like, oh, we hired you for a reason. Go out there, go see patients, you know, hit the ground running, et cetera, et cetera. I, I want to warn against that, right? And I want to say, hey, listen, I understand all of that, right? Revenue drives all. But take some time and, and really focus on that education piece, right? They're in a new job and they're still trying to figure it out. So take that time when they're there early with you in your clinic and develop a, a coursework, a framework, a, a, a um, orientation guide of sorts of not only, oh, by the way, here's where you park and here's, you know, here's your employee badge and, you know, here's how you get food in the cafeteria. That's great, right? But also, hey, let's teach you how we do things here at insert name of practice, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that is helpful. One of the things that I, I do in my, in, in my talks that I give formally is I kind of create that framework and that foundation of here are, you know, five things that have really helped me mm -hmm. develop that. And, you know, again, very low level stuff, very, you know, very kind of super, super base level things, but you'd be surprised at how often I get questions and I get feedback when I didn't do that type of thing. That was like, if I had just spent a little bit of time, it would have saved so much time in the end. And what you don't want to get into is the situation where things that they don't understand um, are tied to their compensation, mm -hmm. a la, you know, uh, productivity bonuses. And being able to really have that connection point early before it's too late and they're, you know, pounding your door down going, why didn't I get my insert amount here that I was promised? And you've got to kind of backpedal and say, okay, let's start from the beginning. You don't want to be there. And mm -hmm. so invest the time now. Okay. Um, let's say you are a practice administrator. You've implemented this. You've 
train the providers who have come in six months down the road or whatever time frame you want to look at, how do you measure it to make sure it's working? What, what are some of those KPIs you would advise our practice leaders to look at to go, okay, this training paid off here. We're, we're making this work. Oh, I, I think there's a ton of KPIs. I mean, I, I, you know, two off just the top of my head would be their, their productivity, you know, okay. uh, uh, actual standards, right? If you give them a target, right? And you say, you need to hit this. And then you tell them how to hit it, when to hit it, what level is each visit that you see based on CPT codes? Again, work our view is, is a giant one that is used a lot, right? So, so you know, uh, using an example of work our view, right? If your goal is to, and I'm making up one here, right? 5,000 work our views in a year. And you know, for every 99213, it's X number of work our views. I used to have all those memorized, you know, and obviously it changes a little bit, but you know, if you know that I need to see uh, quick math, 5,000 divided by whatever, that's X number of patients, you're gonna see them schedule that next patient. You're gonna see them make an add-on. You're gonna see them going that extra mile, especially in the last quarter, for them to get to that goal. I don't think you need, you know, much more than productivity as a KPI. Although, um, you know, I think that there are some other things that you can just, you know, pull data on. Um, one is billing compliance, right? That's something that I've also um, really focused on, right? You need to document, document, document. I say it all the time, all the time, all the time. Please document. I don't know what you're doing unless you document. Our, you know, certified coders can't, you know, argue on your behalf when they get denials and et cetera, et cetera, if you don't document. The whole revenue cycle really is impactful on documentation and understanding exactly what is done. And so another KPI is denial management percentages, mm -hmm. right? How many percent of denials are we getting for specific codes, right? We're always going to get denials. Let me, let me not, you know, uh, you know, promise you the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow here. We're always going to get denials. Insurance companies are always going to be insurance companies. However, for specific denial codes like, hey, not adequate documentation, you're probably going to see a decline in that as we start doing some of these implementation things. Okay. Last question. And this is more speculative, or maybe you have some research on it, but right now, the way you're describing it, it, it does put a burden on the uh, practice administrators to develop a program and to get this uh, underway. Do you foresee uh, med schools adopting a this end of the curriculum at any point in any fashion at all? What, what could happen there? Oh, gosh, Daniel. I, you know, I, I think if I can die an old man and, you know, at the end of that, I can, I can say that the one shining star that I can hang my hat on is that, you know, I helped not be the soul, but I helped, you know, advocate and lobby. I mean, I don't live that far from D.C., um, you know, having, you know, the double the, uh, AMC, which is the American Association of Medical Colleges, um, implement that into the curricula so that that is actually what is going to be taught. I would love that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, do I think it'll happen in my lifetime? Maybe. Right. And I think that me and some colleagues are, are, are developing some some, uh, you know, thoughts about that. 
Um, probably a little early to, to say it on a podcast that other people are going to listen to, but uh, I will say that there are active conversations that I'm having uh, with MGMA, um, with a couple of colleagues around the country uh, for us to develop uh, particular curricula and, and products um, to help with exactly what I've been talking about. Something I'm really excited about and uh, something that um, I don't think I can quite say out loud right now. Uh, I'll keep you in suspense. Um, but uh, things that are in active conversations with MGMA executive leadership um, that, that I hope that I can get back on this podcast with you and share with you. Because, uh, I mean, man, I'm really pumped for it. Um, and I think it's exactly what we need uh, right now at this point in time uh, in kind of the climate that, that we find ourselves in. Well, Jonathan, good luck in those endeavors. And we will definitely have you back on if anything changes in that regard. And thanks today for joining us on the podcast. Well, it was my pleasure, Daniel. Thanks for allowing me to to wax poetic for a little while. Definitely something that I'm uh, really, uh, you know, passionate about and excited about and, and happy to share it with the listeners. Well, you, you definitely put some bugs in our ears to uh, use your colloquialisms there. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry about all those Southern affluisms. You, you can take the, the, the boy out of Texas, but, uh, you know, he's still in Maryland using them, I guess. <laughs> well... Thank you again. And, and that is going to do it for this episode of MGMA's Insights Podcast. Thanks to Jonathan Lear, Division Administrator, Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology at Johns Hopkins Medicine. And thanks to all of you for listening to the MGMA Podcast Network. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership.